You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would, take your Bibles with me and turn to Genesis 1. It's going to be a while before we, we get there, but you can just the same put your finger. Shouldn't be too hard to find. Many of you know that this last week, uh, Desiree and I went to, uh, went to Arizona and we were there uh, for some meetings. Those meetings were uh, denominational meetings and uh, regarding some, some questions, some things that are going on in the life of our, uh, our denomination on a national level. So uh, this has been a question that has been uh, going on for literally years now uh, that and, and because of my position in the, in the structure of things uh, that I've been working with and through. And uh, so I wanted to take and give you a little bit of an update on what's going on there and then just uh, deal with uh, even this subject, kind of where I think the, the crux of things lie. So not going to handle the whole deal uh, today, but just want to deal with some things in, in Genesis. So I really feel like our church needs a, a little update on, on what's going on in our denomination on a national level. I want to be a little bit careful here because uh, we just got back from this study conference in Arizona, and those things that happened there are pretty fresh in my mind. I've been on the phone uh, in the last two days more than I have been in the last five years. Uh, I would not want to make any statements here before I've had a chance to really think through some of these things a little bit more. Uh, and just to make it clear, uh, not thinking through my biblical position on these things, which you'll see in a few moments, but uh, the study conference in general and how I personally feel the, uh, the conference should uh, and, our, and our church should proceed in these things. So those are the things that I, that I want to weigh and want to reserve comment from. Um, one hand, I want to tread lightly on those comments, but let me just back up and give you the, the lay of the land and get you up to speed on some of the conversation that's going on, at least somewhat. I'm going to make references to things that are confessional. Uh, I'm going to make reference to things that are uh, a matter of policy. And those things that are confessional are confessional are things that are in our statement of faith. Things that are policy, then, are policies that instruct how we live out that statement of faith. Does that make sense? So policy are, are things put in place that instruct us on how we live out the confession of faith in, in daily life. Confession of faith is like the doctrinal statement. So policies are binding. They're to be adhered to. Uh, because that is how we said that we as uh, uh, MB, Mennonite Brethren community, live out that statement of faith. So uh, the, the issue of women serving in the role of lead pastor in a church is not confessional for the United States Mennonite Brethren denomination, but it is a matter of policy. Let me explain a little bit. 
In, in 1981, and I'm sure before that, but in 1981, there was a, a formal policy put in place as a resolution at a national convention. This means that a statement was put forward by a, a group. Probably they didn't come up with it at the national convention. It was a statement put forward by those who were in charge. It was discussed. Possibly some of the wording was changed. I don't know about that. But then it was ultimately voted on at that general assembly, that conference in 1981. And that statement was affirmed. I don't have that statement here. But it was reaffirmed in 1999, and a little more explanation was added to it. So... Uh, and, it, and the stuff that was added to it was basically to encourage churches to let women use their gifts in the life of the local church and in the denominational structure. Let me just share with you what, and I'll put it on the, the screen, uh, what the current policy is, which is the 1999 resolution. And that is that women be encouraged to minister in the church in every function other than lead pastorate. The church is to invite women to exercise leadership on conference boards and pastoral staff positions in our congregations, institutions, and agencies. We ask women to, to minister as gifted, called, and affirmed. We call the church to be increasingly alert to the gifts of women and to become more active in calling them to minister. We further call people in the spirit of Christ to relate to one another in a mutual respect as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Okay? It's quite a policy. That's, that's the policy. Now, that statement was a big compromise. Of course, wasn't at the meeting back then, but I've heard a lot about it. The fact is, it's a compromise for me. Uh, a little bit. I'm what's called a, a soft complementarian, so I, I really go uh, I'm soft on, on some of these things, but it goes in uh, this statement, but it gives, it gives churches quite a lot of freedom in how they're organizing. You see the, the statement, the role of lead pastor in the church should be a qualified male. In other positions, those are up to debate. And those are where individual churches can go in the direction they would want to go on how far that's going to, to be. Most on the most, and that's where the compromise was. I mean, this is this is about as far as you can go and still hold on to that lead pastor side. So most of the most of those on the complementarian side would insist that the role of, of elder, which a pastor is an elder, would be reserved for a qualified male. Some would take this further. They would be a little more of a what's called a hard complementarian, and they would say that uh Anytime a woman teaches adult Sunday school class, for instance, the woman shouldn't teach in, in mixed classes and, and some of those things. But that's neither here nor there. The, the policy isn't making comments on those things, though. Those things are up for churches to decide. It just says that we ought to encourage women in the life of the churches to use their gifts in various places, but that the lead pastor role is reserved for a qualified man. And it does a great job of encouraging the churches and pushing the churches to recognize the fact that women are gifted and women are uh, very important and crucial in the life of the church. So this is our current policy. And the central district recognizes that 
It is, it is a compromise for most of us, but the central district is okay with this policy. It goes further than many of us are really comfortable with, but we also realize that churches should have freedom in this area as church, churches are structured uh, differently. So, but it needs to have a line there to maintain identity. The fact is, several years ago, I got a letter from an MB professor encouraging churches to push for changing this policy. Just kind of going back and kind of explaining to you uh, where I'm at in all of this now, uh, my first um, introduction to it. Uh, I visited then with, with Roy Burkett at, at Bethesda about it. He was the chair of the Board of Faith and Life of the Central District back then. That is a position that I now hold. Um, and the Board of Faith and Life uh, sent a letter to the national group saying that the Central District was actually okay with the current policy. They were not interested in changing the policy. And since then, the Central District has, as a whole, has remained resolute on this. The Board of Faith and Life in the conference is responsible for uh, licensing and ordaining pastors. So any church that wants to call a pastor, their application process, it, there's a licensing document that you get from the denomination that comes to the Board of Faith and Life, and the Board of Faith and Life then needs to sign off on it because we don't want churches that don't teach the Trinity or something. Um, so the Board of Faith and Life uh, looks at each one of those. So they're responsible for licensing and ordaining pastors. Um, so you see how the, the issue of the, the female pastor issue would be involved in licensing and ordaining pastors. The, the, the Board of Faith and Life is also to guard and protect the conference from doctrinal error. So that's where the Board of Faith and Life in our conference is, is involved in these issues. Uh, last year, in January, the National Board of Faith and Life invited all of the District Board of Faith and Life members uh, to Arizona to determine if this policy could be changed. We weren't talking about the, the doctrinal merits of it. We were just asking the question, can it be changed? And can we all be okay with it changing. Uh, David Mendel and I went to that. We were both on the Board of Faith and Life in the Central District. Um, and by the way, just so you're aware, the Central District includes uh, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Nebraska, and more and more states all the time because there's a lot of people coming in, and I'll say more about that in a few moments. So last year, last January, we met in Arizona with others from our conference and other groups in other districts. And this was, uh, and at this, uh, the outcome of it, we were given some, some homework, and that homework was, uh, could we, in good conscience, adopt what the Canadians did? You know, the, the history, uh, it wasn't too awful long ago, 20 years or something, that the, the United States and Canada were the same. It's called the General Conference. They split, and then you have a Canadian conference, and now a, U, a USMB conference. So now we're, we're two. So the question was, is could we do what the Canadians did, or what would our plan be for going forward? The Canadians, their plan, in a nutshell, was to leave it up to the individual churches to decide. That sounds good at first, but the more we thought about it, we decided that it wasn't really an option for us. For instance, uh, if, if a woman in Church X is seeking ordination or licensing, this means that the Board of Faith and Life, those members of that, who believe that one of the biblical qualifications of an elder or pastor is that they be a qualified male, 
that board would have to violate their conscience and throw that biblical qualification out the window in order to ordain or license them. We can't put our board of faith and life in that question. So secondly, it would have a large impact on how we plant churches. If we as churches then within the central district are uncertain about the leadership structure of new churches that we are giving to and planting, then um, I, w- I believe that the giving in our district would plummet and it would just uh, tear the central district apart and make it a divisive issue uh, that way. So to make a, a story that is getting longer than I anticipated longer, when it came to our homework last year, we proposed something as the central district. And I believe we were the only district that actually pr- did our homework. And that was, and, and we said that this is what we could put forward that would work for us and then remain in fellowship with the other on the national scale. What we did is we took the current licensing and ordination documents that right now you go to the USMB website and if you want to be a pastor in a USMB church, you get those documents. They're the same across all districts. You just give them to the district minister of the district you're applying to. That makes sense. So we proposed that we change ours, that we don't make them the same across the board, that we, that we change ours. In other words, we said that the national could do whatever the national would do, but the national should just let the central district be the central district and care of, and take care of licensing and ordination in our own district the way that we feel it ought to be. In other words, we would keep the policy as it was. We wouldn't challenge that. We would keep the compromise where it was. And we would do that regardless of what others did. That policy was proposed. It was not rejected, but we were not allowed to put that into place at that time. Those on the national level decided to have a a study conference a year later. That's where we just were to anyone that called themselves MB. And this was held this last week in Arizona. Desiree and I went along with Ludd and Julie from our church. Uh, There were several from the central district uh, that went it was a, a bit of a circus, um, and it didn't really help. Long story short. Um, of course, the jury's still a little bit out there, and this is why I'm reserving more comments for later uh, about the study conference itself. In fact, we are going... Yeah, I mentioned earlier that our conference was growing. We are... Um, we've welcomed a number of new churches into the Central District over the past couple years, some of them being from the, the Mennonite USA denomination. And if you know the Mennonite USA, that name, um, there's a lot of groups that are leaving that denomination. In fact, um, the churches, there's some churches that are around here that used to belong to that. Their name is a little bit different. They used to be General Conference Mennonite. Um, but... Prairie Bible, um, Emmanuel, uh, Mount Olivet in town used to, used to belong here, but they left a long time ago because they were struggling with some of these same issues and became independent. So some of these churches now are leaving this, denom- leaving this denomination. Uh, this issue back then led to the LGBTQ issue now. Um, a number of, so a number of churches and, and whole districts left that denomination over this. And they've come to us. 
which is interesting. I visited with churches that have joined us. Um, in fact, going to Sioux City today to, to meet with a church that wants to join us and, and talk to them. And this issue will come up. In fact, the last time I visited with an elder group from a church, they asked us about this before we could ask them. And they wanted to make sure that we were holding the scriptural line on this. I think that we need a firm answer on this as a, as a conference. It's only fair to these groups that are coming in. And now we're going to add Iowa to the list. and These groups that are coming in need a solid place to land, and the Central District has been that for them. I'll be honest, uh, there has been talk about uh, the Central District leaving the USMB and trying to keep the, the Central District together instead of us all splitting up and becoming independent churches or a number of us splitting off and becoming independent churches. That would be a, a big move for the Central District to, to separate like that. I don't want to prematurely head down that path, but at the same time, that might be the best move depending on how things progress in the next few months. Just want you to, to know what conversations are, are talked about being on the table. Our Board of Faith and Life is meeting tomorrow morning uh, to discuss some of these things, how we're going to proceed going forward. I will tell you what I don't want to see. I don't want to see us mess around for too long and have a great number of churches leave the Central District and leave the conference and become independent churches. I would rather see the Central District be together. So that's the update. It's a little bit longer than I anticipated, but important that you know what's going on here, um, what we're talking about, what we're dealing with. If you have comments, thoughts on this, um, I would welcome them. Um, you know, you send me an email or whatever. I'm more than happy to, to listen. So we'll also say that we did a sermon series at Bethel a couple years ago called uh, The Beauty of Complementarity. You can go to the website, find our sermon podcast page. I think there's a, a category for that sermon uh, series. There's eight, ten sermons in there, and you can, you can find that if you're interested in going back to listen to what we said on that. I don't think I've changed my mind, uh, my views on that very much since then. But if you would just turn with me, if you haven't already, to Genesis chapter 1. Let me explain why we're going back to Genesis, because this issue of, of women in, in leadership, women in, in the pastoral role in the life of the church really goes back to Genesis and what we call male headship. Now, there are those. I kind of want to set this up for you because this is the this is what I, I believe is the, the big question here. There are those that would say that men and women were created equal, meaning that there was really no distinction between them. They were mutually submissive to one another. One was not head over the other. 
Both had the same responsibility. But after the fall, after the curse was put in place, they go to to Genesis 3.16. To the woman, God said, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So if male headship in the world is a product of the fall, then any distinction of roles within the family structure or the church would too be a product of the fall. The whole patriarchal system then, in every way, would be a product of the fall. Does this make sense? What I'm explaining here, or what is known, is more of an egalitarian position. That there's equality without distinction. Men and women are created equal. There's no distinction between them. Or, maybe to phrase it better, there should be no distinction in role. Those distinctions in roles are a result of the fall. So these egalitarians then would point to New Testament, specifically uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 28, where we read, There is neither Jew or Greek, or neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. They would suggest that what's happening here is the gospel is undoing what the curse has has done. That in the gospel community, there should be equality, meaning a lack of distinction and a blurring of gender roles in the life of the family and the life of the church. However, on the other hand, if one could demonstrate that God not only created the sexes to be equal, but with distinction in regard to their roles and, and instituted what is known as male headship, that this was inherent in the design of God prior to the fall, then one could make the case that male headship in the family and the church are not a product of the fall. Therefore, they are the design of God and God created men and women to complement one another. And that was the design of God. You do that, and you can make a case for the church structure. So it all goes back uh, to Genesis. Did these things come about as a result of the fall, or was it God's design before the fall? So this is a question I want to briefly look at this morning. And I know it's going to bring up a lot of other questions, and we'll just, uh, but we just wanted to talk about this idea of male headship and the design of God. And it is, say that it is not a product of the fall. Having said that, I want to make something else absolutely clear. Everything about God's design in creation that has bearing on the home and church is good. And sin then is a perversion of what God has declared to be good. What I mean here is that there is no question that some have taken this doctrine of complementarianism or more specifically male headship and used it to abuse women in, in some way, whether it be spiritually in the life of the church, holding them back and allowing, not letting them use their, their gifts and their ministries in the life of the local congregation or physically or emotionally in the home. The abuses here are real. They've had a profound impact on how this view is portrayed in the culture at large. And when one says male headship, our minds automatically go to abuses, not design. And there's a reason for that. And that is because many have abused this. They've used it in a a self-seeking way as opposed to a self-sacrificing way. 
I don't have time to get into all of this this morning, but just suffice to say that there is a difference between what we'll call authoritarianism or patriarchal system of abuses of headship, which is a reality, and what we'll call biblical complementarianism on the other side, where the, the sexes are created in such a way to complement one another and fit together like a puzzle, and God uses that in his design, a view that sees design in headship. A view that acknowledges that the head bears responsibility for those who are under their care. That headship is never self-seeking. This form of leadership isn't authoritarian, but self-sacrificing. Thinking of those under their care, wanting the best for them. Those who are under the authority of male leadership recognize that those who are under their authority, who are over them, have been placed there by God for their spiritual care and development. And they live under that authority in such a way that helps the leader be better by pushing him into a dependence on God as he leads in the church and in the home. So, that was... Really quick there, but just know that there is a a healthy view here and one that people have used as an excuse for their own self-seeking purpose. And that's not what we're talking about. So let's start here. Start. That was the longest introduction I've ever given, I think, and I've given some long ones. If you're still in Genesis, let's look at the creation account and see if we see headship prior to the fall. This is where we need to start, and I believe that we clearly do see headship here. One of the first things that we ought to notice in the creation account of humanity is that God created Adam first, and then he created Eve. And then you have to ask yourself, I mean, is there any significance to this? Or is it just a random thing? Well, when we read... The creation account in Genesis 1, it seems as though uh, they actually were created at the same time and created equal, but then later on, we recognize that they were not created at the same time. However, they were created equal. We should recognize this, but at the same time, we need to go back and just clarify what we mean when we say the word equal. We've already said that we believe that God created men and women with distinction, Even though men and women are different, we ought to celebrate, and we ought to celebrate those differences. We ought to acknowledge also and celebrate the important ways that men and women are equal. First, they're both created in God's image. Genesis 1.27 makes that absolutely clear. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The issue was that Adam needed a suitable companion. And even though a dog is man's best friend, Adam just couldn't relate to the dog. When we relate to animals, we must always relate to animals on their level, not ours. So you can't have any kind of meaningful relationship with a dog, and I know some might disagree with that, so I'll say it a different way. There's no real comparison between the relationship that a man has with his spouse and his pet dog. And if one says that he has more of a relationship with his dog than his spouse, he's either trying to be funny or he needs counseling. (laughs) Secondly, notice that Adam and Eve are both given responsibility in the garden. 
and placed under the moral law of God. In verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Third, Adam and Eve are both guilty of disobeying the command of God and they were both judged for their disobedience and they were both excluded from the garden. Fourth, men and women are both objects of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Tremendous equality there. We see this after the fall that both are clothed in the skin of animals that were killed so that their nakedness could be covered. A clear picture of our being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus who died so that we might have right standing before God based on what he has done, not based on what we have done. So men and women are equal, but at the same time, we must recognize that God created Adam first or there, and, and ask the question, was there significance? And there was. God was not absent-minded in that, he created, in that he created Adam thinking that he would find a suitable helper in the animal kingdom. That Adam would, would look at all of these animals that were brought before him and, and find himself somebody that would compliment him. And I commented on, on Katie and Charity how they complimented one another up here. There was nobody like that in the whole animal kingdom for Adam. Everything was different. Every animal had their compliment, but there was no Eve. Looking at chapter 2 and verse 18, for instance, the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Then we go on and read that God formed every animal and the bird and brought them before Adam, and Adam named them. That means that Adam got to know them and named them accordingly. And after Adam gets to know all of these animals, after he names all of these animals, there was not a helper fit for him. It's not as though God looked at all of this and said, huh, I messed up. He did it for a reason. Think about this. God created all of the animals, male and female. And Adam is watching how all of this works. How they all interact. And he notices that something is, is missing from his own life. There's no helper. So the Lord creates for him a helper fit for him. And notice how the Lord does this. He, he doesn't draw her on the ground and breathe the breath of life into her like he does Adam. Instead, he takes a rib from Adam and makes it into a woman, and then he brings her to Adam, and Adam looks at her and says, At last! Something was, something was missing. At last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. In other words, she is a compliment to me. She fits. She works. If you go back to verses 18 and 20, there you see the word fit. Some translations use the word suitable, a helper fit for him or suitable for him. The idea of the Hebrew word there was correspondence. There, there was nothing that corresponded to him. There was nothing that, that complemented him. So when Adam looked at all of the other animals, there was no correspondence there. There was not one of them that complemented him. This is the point. God created Eve the way that he created her, he created her in such a way that she complimented her husband. She was his helper. 
She was like Adam in every respect because she had a unique, created design. She was designed, though, to be his helper. She was equal with him. But she had a different role. The Hebrew word helper just means that she was called to assist him in his vocation. She was called to assist in the task that God had given him to do. Now, note that we're not saying that that word helper always means that she was in a submissive role to him. That she was somehow inferior or less than Adam. It just means that God gave her a unique calling based on his design, and that was to be his helper. Now, I can say this because the same Hebrew word is used elsewhere. In fact, that word helper is actually used in Genesis 49.25, for instance, for God. The God of our fathers will surely help you or will be your helper. The idea is that God will assist and he'll come alongside. But in this case, it's different because God created her for this purpose. She didn't just come alongside and help. She was the helper. That was her created purpose. That was her design. In Genesis, in chapter 49, we're just reading about what God does, that he helps us. Not how he designed his creation. For God said that he would make a helper fit for Adam. That is how she was designed. And that is how God ordered his creation. And this order indicates that the order there included Adam as head and Eve as his helper. She was created to be in a submissive role to her husband. Now, let me make a bit of a a parenthetical comment here. And I don't have time to flesh this out totally, but it, it wouldn't be a mistake to leave this unsaid, what we're talking about here is the relationship between a husband and a wife. God created a wife for Adam. This text isn't suggesting that all women must submit to all men. That's not found in the Bible. That men in the church have authority over all women just because they are men. It's not biblical. The New Testament is is clear. Women are to submit to their own husbands. And their husbands are to love them and give themselves for them as Christ did the church. This kind of goes back to that word that we gave of of caution a bit ago. We're not talking about a, a patriarchal system where men rule because they are men and because they are better. We're always looking at this subject as design. And this morning, we're just dealing with a little bit of the question. And that is to show that this design design existed before the fall. And if we back up and look at the creation of of man and woman, we see something interesting there as well. In chapter 2, God, in verse 7 of chapter 2, formed the man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a a nephish, a living creature. And And then we read, after God created him, the Lord planted the garden, The tree of life was was in the middle of the garden along with the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord then put the man in the garden to work and to keep the garden. And the Lord gave the command to Adam. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, 
But the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's verse 17. It's in verse 18 that we see God speaking of a helper for Adam and Eve. But Eve is, or Adam, but Eve isn't created then until verse 21. It's important because it shows the, the headship of Adam. He is created. He's placed in the garden with a mandate to work and keep the garden. He's told that he can eat from every tree except the one. And then we start talking about Eve and she is created as his helper, one to compliment him in the task of working and keeping the garden and filling and multiplying the earth. It's important to understand at this point that Adam wasn't just Eve's boss, but he was responsible for her. We'll see this more in a few minutes, but he was responsible to relay to her the mandate that they were given to work and keep the garden so that she could fulfill her vocation, her calling, which was to help and assist. Adam was responsible to relay the command of God to her. God said we could eat from any tree in the garden except for this one. So not to eat from any tree or they will, or that one tree or they will surely die. Notice that this design and order was placed. It was all in place before the fall. But let's just briefly look at the fall itself. In chapter three, at the onset, we learned that the serpent was more crafty than any other animal in the garden that God had made. One can make the case here, and many have, that Adam actually didn't expel the serpent from the garden, and he should have, which was to exercise the dominion that he had and keep the garden. The nature of the servant was, serpent wasn't unknown. First verse of the chapter makes that clear, the fact that every animal was brought before him and he named it. <clears throat> In any case, the serpent speaks to the woman. <clears throat> Did God actually say... Now we know that Adam was standing with her. I, I think it's interesting that the pattern of leadership in chapter two was God, Adam, woman. And now Satan is usurping that design, going to the woman and speaking to her in this. In verse six, the woman sees that it was good for food and she ate and then she gave some to her husband who was with her. Now, the result of this extended to all of creation. The woman was not excluded from the curse, of course, but it is Adam who was ultimately held responsible. In verse 9, when Adam and Eve are hiding themselves because they realize their nakedness and their separation from God, we learn that the Lord God called to the man and he said, Adam, where are you? Verse 10, it is the man that answers. Adam answers. And when God questioned him, he blames God. It is your fault because you gave me this woman. By the way, then he throws the woman under the bus, if there were buses, for taking the fruit first. Here's the thing with headship or any kind of authority. You cannot neglect your responsibility. In this case, to exercise dominion in the garden and exclude the serpent from it, you cannot neglect your responsibility when the serpent comes to your wife and questions the intent and design of the creator and then say, well, it just wasn't my fault. 
With authority, with headship, comes ultimate responsibility. You cannot push a boulder down a hill and then when it hits a town below, it destroys it and kills a massive amount of people. You can't say, that destruction is not my fault. All I did is push it down. You're responsible. We need to make a comment, though, on verse 16. We brought this up at the onset. The curse of God, when it is directed toward the woman, it seems like what might be said here is that male headship then is a result of the curse, or at least some would say this. I think it's clear that the pattern of headship exists before the fall, but the question remains, what does verse 16 mean when God says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you? I want to be brief here, but there's, there's been a number of options put forward. I just want to throw a couple of them out so you can see that people have really been thinking through this. Uh, the, the first is that what it could mean is that the woman, her sexual desire for her husband is, is so strong that she's willing to accept the, the consequences of that, namely having children. This ties the, the statement there in the second part of 16 to the first part with the pain of childbirth. The section, second option uh, would be that the woman has such a, a psychological dependence on the man that she's willing to submit to, to what is often uh, insensitive and tyrannical rule in a, a relationship. And of course, we do see that. I mean, abused women do go back to their abusers. Third, a woman's desire becomes completely subservient to those, uh, to that of her husband as a result of this judgment. Um, I mean, I would say that, that there's a matter of truth here to all of these, but just the same, they do not explain the, the best meaning of, of the text, I don't think. I, I just bring them up to explain that there are a number of options here. In verse 16, James Montgomery Boyce notes that the, the headship of the husband in marriage is not something that is only, uh, it only enters after the fall, but it's present in the second tap, chapter of Genesis as well. And then he goes on to say, and I'll just quote him here. He says, quote, would it not be more correct to say that the woman willingly submits to the leadership of the man before the fall, but has been characterized both in her original sin and since by a rebellion against that rule. Just as Adam and all of his descendants are characterized by their rebellion against God. That's a good answer. In, in other words, what happened in the fall is a corruption of what God designed to be good and beautiful. This is basically what all of sin is. Just think of pornography, for instance or other sexual sin, being involved in sexual sin before or outside of marriage. We're not saying that, that it's the, the sex that's bad. God created that. He designed that. It's a, it's a good thing. It's the perversion of it that is evil and needs to be repented of. And here, I think this is just the same. What God designed to be beautiful and an order that, that fits in the life of the, of the marriage and in the life of the church. 
how God designed the, the structure to be and how God designed the, the husband to, to care and, and nurture for his wife is now more characterized by a tyrannical rule because it's abused by sin. And, and, and women that are, that are supposed to be uh, submissive to this role now are put in a position where they're, they're rebelling against it because the, the, because the relationship from the top down has been tainted by, by sin. Some argue that the design from the beginning was no headship, and that was the result of the fall, but it, that doesn't make sense either when you get to the New Testament and you, and you start reading the book of Romans, for instance. In Romans chapter 5, we, we realize that, that Adam there is, is, our, is our head. He is our, our federal representative. He was responsible for the actions in the garden. And it was because of that that, that sin, or as Romans 5.19 puts it, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. You're not sinners because you sin. You're sinners because you sin. You're sinners because you're sinners. You sin because you're sinners. It was... Adam's sin that plunged the human race under this curse. In other words, it was Adam that pushed the boulder down the hill. And he's responsible for all the destruction that it caused to the human race below. The Bible calls Jesus Christ, though, the second Adam. Where Adam failed... Where God told Adam, do this and live. Where he fell short and was disobedient to the one command of God. Jesus Christ comes upon the scene and he lives perfectly. He excels in, in every way that we've fallen short in rebellion against God. And he did this so that we might trust him and put our place in, put our faith in trust in him. That we might have access to the life. that Adam didn't give us. A life that could not be earned in Adam, but only taken and received as a gift in Jesus Christ. This is why the New Testament, we learned that, that, that in marriage, the husband is to exemplify the love of Christ that he has for his church. As the husband loves his wife, he loves her with, with faithfulness, the faithfulness of Christ. His love is, is self-sacrificing, not self-serving. And he bears the, the ultimate responsibility in that relationship, just as, just as Adam. You know, I think what our, what our response here is in taking a look at this whole thing is to recognize that a lot of times we are far more shaped by our culture than we want to admit. Because in our culture, we constantly see these grand designs of God being perverted. And we see tyrannical rule. We see abuses in, of authority and power in the lives of, of churches. We see abuses of power in, in homes and with children. And our tendency is to push back against that and say, no, that's not the way it is to be, and to go too far on the other side. And when we do that, we miss the design of God in the first place. This was just a, a short comment on all of this. There is 
there is a lot more. But I hope you don't miss that even in this, when we speak of the the headship of of Adam and the headship of the, the husband, it always pushes us to our true head. Somebody that is far better. Somebody that is far better than Adam who achieved what Adam could not achieve. We didn't get life in Adam. We got only death and a curse. But in Jesus Christ, who is the perfect Adam, we get life. The husband, pastor, the leaders of of a church, God has placed them in in authority over us. They are are our head. They're there for our our spiritual well-being. The, The Bible makes that clear. Hebrews chapter 13, God has placed the spiritual leaders, the pastors in the church for your purpose. And that's a God-ordained thing. But we look at this and we see pastors are not perfect. Leaders of churches are not perfect. They are tainted. They are corrupted by sin as well. And that order and that design pushes us to the one who is perfect. The only one who can save us from our sin is Jesus Christ. Put your only faith, your only trust and hope in him. Not yourself and not somebody else. He is the only one that can save because he is the true head of the church. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.